Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Hello there, I'm Andrew McDermott. Today I'm speaking with paleoentomologist Dr. Gunther Beckley, a senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Beckley served as curator for amber and fossil insects in the Department of Paleontology at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. He earned his PhD in geosciences from Eberhard Karls University in Tübingen. Beckley specializes in the fossil history and systematics of insects, the most diverse group of animals, and especially dragonflies. Gunther, welcome back to the show. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Well, today I'd like to begin unpacking an article you wrote last year for our flagship news site, Evolution News. It was called Ape Man Waves Goodbye to Darwinian Gradualism. Right. And in it, you discuss a recent paleontological discovery that made headlines around the globe in the fall of 2019. After 15 years of searching and after the recovery of over 12,000 fossils, including 230 hominin remains, a rather complete skull has been found and described for Australopithecus anamensis, the oldest and most primitive representative of the Australopithecines, generally considered to be the direct ancestor of Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis, that lived in the same region. So, first, can you give us a little bit of background on how this fossil skull was found? Sure. So, uh, it was actually discovered during fieldwork of one of the most famous paleoanthropologists. It's an Ethiopian called Johannes Haile Selassie. He discovered a lot of important fossil hominids like Australopithecus gari and, and other uh, an important skeleton of the Lucy species and so on. And he's now curator at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History and was working at a site called Mirodora in the very dry, very hot Afa region of Ethiopia, where many of the important hominin fossils were found. Most famous example, of course, is Lucy. So the new skull was discovered uh, already in 2016, in February 2016, by a local goat herder uh, with the name of Ali Beraino. And this guy had tried unsuccessfully for years to get hired by Haile Selassie. And he had a kind of history of false reports. So he claimed to have found fossils. And when they checked, it was just rocks. So this guy was digging in addition to his goat pen. And he stumbled upon an exposed bone, which later turned out to be an upper jaw bone of a human. And he informed an official, and then Haile Selassie was contacted and called to the site. And of course, initially, he was skeptical because of this history of this guy. But when he was on place, he immediately recognized that this is a huge discovery. And his co-workers reported that he started jumping around in joy. And then they started to dig and sieve the ground to find more of the bones were literally working beneath piles of stinking goat dung that had accumulated over many years. After a while, they, they found the remaining bones of the cranium that fit to this uh, jawbone that was discovered by Berino. And afterwards, colleagues studied the sediments. They found volcanic ash layers, so-called tuff, 
immediately above and immediately beneath the layers where the skull was found. And with these volcanic ash layers, the site could be radiometrically dated very precisely to almost 3.8 million years. So that's about the background story of this discovery. Ah, very interesting. It's amazing what you find accidentally, isn't it? Right, right. That's true. So how is the age of the skull significant then? Does does it satisfy Darwinian expectations and fit into the generally accepted phylogenetic tree? Yeah, so as you already indicated, it's the oldest Australopithecine skull ever discovered. It's the first skull of this species, uh, Australopithecus anamensis, which is the earliest and most primitive of the Australopithecines. So it's quite a thing. And now the, concerning this question, does it satisfy Darwinian expectations? In a way, yes, because already Darwin predicted that human ancestors should be found in, in Africa because the assumed closest relatives, chimps and gorillas, occur there. So we found ape men in Africa, and, and this and other fossil shows features that are intermediate, morphologically intermediate between apes and humans, so it was bipedal but had a chimp-like skull. But, and that is the important but, is this species and this skull, as well as other fossil hominines, they show a widely chaotic pattern of character distribution. So there is no universally agreed phylogenetic tree of humans and if you look at all these forms, of course, you do not have to assume that all fossils have to align in one, uh, let's say, directional series as this famous cartoon where you have at the beginning an ape and at the end a modern human. So there could be side branches, for example. But the important thing is that the characters incongruently distributed. So they do not well align into a successive progression from ape-like to human-like forms, uh, something that was called additive typogenesis by Willy Hennig. And that means in some of the uh, fossils you have primitive postcranial skeleton and a very derived human-like skull, and in others you have a ape-like skull and a relatively derived postcranial skeleton. So either you have multiple evolutions of human-like characters or multiple reversals back to ape-like states. In any way, the characters do not align well into a phylogenetic pattern, and that does not at all satisfy Darwinian expectations. So an important discovery, but it doesn't fit neatly into the uh, Darwinian theory. Then. Right. Now, your article talked about things that were notable, but what is the real surprise about this discovery? Now, there were several surprises, and, and Haile Selassie uh, himself said that the skull had a quite unexpected combination of primitive and advanced characters, which alludes to a thing I said before. And this character combination even questioned the status of Australopithecus anamensis as a potential ancestor of, of Afarensis. So not only as direct ancestor, uh, but as an ancestor at all. And the skull also allowed to study similarities between anamensis, which was previously only known by fragments, and Australopithecus afarensis, which is much better known to more complete skeletons, uh, Lucy and Cardenumo. 
And because of this new evidence, it was possible to evaluate a previously found skull fragment, the so-called Velodeli frontal, which is a skull bone, a frontal bone discovered in 1981. And it turned out, because of this new evidence, that it belongs to Australopithecus afarensis. Previously, it was not possible to decide which species it belongs to. And this has huge implication because this Velodeli frontal bone is about 100,000 years older than the Anamensis skull that was found now. And this means that Anamensis and Afarensis were contemporaries for 100,000 years, at least coexisting species. And this refuted the previous total consensus view that Anamensis gradually transformed, morphed into Afarensis. This view was even still strongly endorsed by a very recent study in 2019 by parents Fukuchi et al. in the journal Paleobiology in a study titled Phylogeny, Ancestors and Anagenesis in the Hominin Fossil Record. And they concluded that uh, Australopithecus anamensis is ancestral to, to Afarensis and both are just chronospecies which uh, within uh, one lineage. And this was totally refuted by the new evidence. Well, just so uh, listeners can uh, be clear on what's at stake here with this find, Darwin's theory of evolution predicts that we'll find evidence of gradual species-to-species transitions, what's called anagenetic evolution or anagenesis. How does this recent fossil skull impact that expectation? Right. So maybe first let's get the terms right, because technically gradual species-to-species transitions and anagenesis are not the same thing. So there are two assumed modes of speciation in, in evolutionary theory. One is a successive transformation within an unbranched lineage. This is called phyletic speciation or anagenesis in the strict sense. And the other is speciation by splitting of an ancestral species into two divergent lineages, which is called branching speciation or cladogenesis. Uh, and the latter is usually considered as the predominant mode. Okay. Both modes assume a more or less gradual transition between the ancestral and the descendant species. So we have to distinguish what does the fossil say about uh, gradual species to species transitions in general and then in particular about anagenesis. So that said, as I already indicated, the new discovery completely refuted anagenesis as interpretation of the relationship between anamensis and afarensis because they were coexistent, so one could not have morphed into the other. And this has quite far-reaching implications because this anamensis case was one of the most prominent examples of only very few known alleged fossil examples for anagenetic evolution of one species into another at all. And also one of the few fossil examples for gradual species-to-species -species transition in general. So it was a genuine destruction of an icon of evolution. Okay. And in a future episode here, we're going to take a look at a few more examples that they put in the textbooks, and you will refute those in due course. Right. Well, I, I, I've seen you use the term stasis is data. Can you explain that and how it relates to this? 
Yeah, sure. So stasis data is actually a remark by the late paleontologist uh, Stephen Jay Gould. And uh, Gould, of course, recognized as a paleontologist that the fossil record is quite unlike Darwin's expectations uh, and rather shows that new species appear suddenly, not gradually. Then they stay unchanged for a longer period until the species disappears and is replaced by another species, which also appears abruptly. And Gould was actually quite frustrated by the common ignorance of the empirical evidence for stasis and said, and that's an original quote from Gould, say it 10 times before breakfast every day, stasis is data, stasis is data. And uh, this recognition led Gould and his colleague uh, Niles Eldridge to formulate this famous punctuated equilibrium hypothesis to explain this pattern in the fossil record, but they did explain it with an untestable ad hoc hypothesis. And the quite revealing thing is if you look at the original article by Eldridge and Gould from 1972, where they introduced this punctuated equilibria hypothesis, the editor wrote a comment to this article. And in this comment, the editor said, this idea that theory dictates what one sees cannot be stated too strongly. And this says a lot about how, let's say, this theory is formulated to accommodate conflicting evidence. So, but anyway, uh, punctuated equilibria and also the, the related notion of stabilizing selection, which was often invoked to explain the stasis in the fossil record, they did not solve the issue. And uh, there was a blog post by a famous hardcore Darwinist, Larry Moran, uh, who has uh, the Sandwalk blog on the internet. And he posted a blog post in 2012 where he reported that this stasis is a kind of paradox. It's a paradox of stasis and that he recognized, and that's his word, that this turns out to be a big problem for evolutionary biologists because, and that's again his words, not mine, because such stasis is not consistent with adaptive evolution by natural selection. And also his words, because there are hardly examples for the commonly suggested explanation of stabilizing selection. So this stasis in the fossil record is, is quite a significant problem for, for neo-Darwinism. And now concerning this skull, this Anamensis skull, of course, it cannot directly support stasis in the strict sense because to document stasis, you need a lot of fossils of the same kind uh, to make a statistical claim that's only possible, for example, in marine invertebrates. But what the fossil did is that it refuted, as I said, a famous case for alleged anagenesis. So what it did, it, it showed that the pattern fits nicely with the observations by people li like Gould or Eldridge, that the fossil record is totally unlike uh, Darwinian expectations of gradualism. And how has the paleontological research community responded to this discovery? Now, in a perfect world, I, we, we would have hoped that they all came together and published a statement that Darwinian predictions are now so much contradicted by the fossil record that they have to consider a major rethink of the theory. But that's, of course, not what happened. So uh, instead, they all celebrated this discovery as another milestone in the research on human evolution. And with very few exceptions, I only read a single article that emphasized this point, uh, they at best mentioned in passing that anagenesis is now obsolete for this anamensis afarensis transition. And they mention it in a way as if this is just an irrelevant one example among hundreds and not uh, one of the very few that existed at all. 
<laughs> Typical. Well, how do we view this discovery through the lens of intelligent design? Now, that makes, of course, a big difference because intelligent design makes it much easier to accommodate and interpret discontinuous data from the fossil record because intelligent design, contrary to Darwinism, does not predict a gradualist pattern uh, in the first place. So it rather predicts uh, discontinuities and succession of pulses of new information followed by stasis. Uh, so that is really a point in favor of intelligent design. That does not necessarily mean that common descent is wrong. Actually, intelligent design is quite agnostic about the issue of common ancestry and free to follow the evidence wherever it leads. But the crucial issue is not common ancestry, but rather how new biological characters and body plans originate. Do they originate by slight changes successively accumulating over long periods of time, as neo-Darwinism suggests, or abruptly through an infusion of information from outside of the system? Well, in a follow-up episode, we'll continue this conversation as you share more examples of the lack of fossil support for gradualist speciation and anagenesis, and you'll help us understand how these examples in the fossil record fit into the framework of intelligent design. So really looking forward to that chat. Until then, Gunter, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Well, to learn more about Dr. Beckley's work, visit his website, www.beckley.at. That's B-E-C-H-L-Y dot A-T. And to listen to more interviews with Beckley and others in the intelligent design research community, hop on over to idthefuture.com or search for the show in your favorite podcasts platform. And if you enjoy the content on this podcast and want to help others find it, consider leaving a positive rating and review in your favorite podcast platform. That will help new listeners discover compelling scientific evidence for intelligent design that they can weigh against the claims of Darwinian evolutionary theory. I appreciate your support. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.